The statements and views expressed on the Voices and Vulnerability podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of Emory University's School of Law or its affiliates. Welcome to Voices and Vulnerability, a podcast of the Vulnerability and the Human Condition Initiative here at Emory Law. I'm your host, Mangala Kinesen. Today, I'm grateful to have Professor Sasha Volok here on the show as my guest. Sasha, thank you for being here. Thank you. Sasha Volok is an associate professor at Emory Law and the head of the university-wide Committee for Open Expression. He teaches constitutional law at Emory and has a PhD in economics and a JD from Harvard University. Professor Volok's academic research interests include constitutional law, statutory interpretation, antitrust, and legal history. Today we're going to talk about free speech, something Professor Volok is something of an expert on. So let's get started. Why does free speech matter? Well, I think free speech is one of our hard-fought constitutional protections. Um, It's absolutely necessary to be um, a good citizen in a democracy. I think it's also absolutely necessary at universities because of the special mission that a university has. What would you say is the special mission that a university has? Well, I think a university could be about many things. Some universities are just trade schools. Some university professional schools might think of themselves narrowly as only imparting a certain set of skills. But I think the standard ideal of a liberal university, again, this is not something necessary about a university, but many universities, including Emory, subscribe to this, is that a university is a place for searching for truth, for generating knowledge. uh, And that's especially the case when you talk about uh, the humanities or the social sciences, we try and generate knowledge or search for truth about society uh, or about philosophy or about how things ought to be and the nature of justice. Those are the sorts of things where it's absolutely necessary to be able to bat ideas around, to discuss what's right and what's wrong, try an idea on for size, let's look at this hypothetical, how would it change if we change the facts this way. Uh, If you can't do that, you can't truly get a good understanding of why your position is right and other positions are wrong, or you can't be convinced to change your position. Even if you're absolutely convinced that your position is right, as John Stuart Mill said, you don't even understand your own position if you haven't practiced um, defending it against the best statement of contrary positions. How can you foster an open exchange of ideas in the university setting? Well, I think that um, for public universities, it's um, very easy because public universities um, are arms of the government, generally arms of the state government. Uh, And like all levels of government in the United States, they're governed by the First Amendment and the First Amendment guarantee of free speech. So hypothetically, if a university said you can't talk about politics here, or you can only talk about it from this perspective, or you can express these views, but you can't express those views. If a public university did that, it's fairly clear that that would be a violation of the First Amendment. And so uh, many universities have been sued because of their restrictive speech codes. For instance, some universities have said, here's a 10 foot by 10 foot area, which is going to be our free speech zone. And here you can say whatever you want, but not outside of the zone. I may be exaggerating a bit on the 10 feet, but um, restrictive speech codes that say 
very that seeks to very tightly circumscribe what students can and can't say and where and when uh, those have been struck down on uh, struck down on First Amendment grounds. That's for public universities. Now in the United States there is a good mix of public universities and private universities. Emory University, for instance, is a private university. And private universities, some are religious, some are secular, there are all sorts. The thing about private organizations is uh, they're not subject to the First Amendment at all. Even if they accept federal funds, uh, they just don't count as state actors, and so the First Amendment wouldn't apply. So hypothetically, if we wanted to say, we're Brigham Young University, and you can't say anything bad about our church. That would be totally legal, and the university could do that. But again, for that subset of universities that see their mission as being about the search for truth and thinking about ideas and producing knowledge, um, it's a sort of bad look for them to have. And so what some universities, Emory among them, what some universities have done is they've voluntarily adopted policies uh, that are protective of free speech. So free speech on, at universities is uh, protected by a combination of the First Amendment uh, at some universities and voluntary statements of free expression at other universities. What does that look like in implementation? Well, so for example, um, at Emory, uh, we have um, a policy, a university policy called the Respect for Open Expression Policy. Uh, and that policy says that members of the university community, broadly speaking, have free speech rights. And the university community includes faculty, staff, students, and some other groups. Um, and it guarantees people's right to protest, to dissent, to talk about what they want to talk about. Uh, it incorporates First Amendment-like ideals of viewpoint neutrality. That is, the university can discriminate against groups or against protests on lots of grounds. For example, you can't protest in a classroom at the time when they're having a class, or you can't protest in the museum where human remains are being kept, or you can't protest in a way that blocks pedestrian traffic. There are many ways of discriminating against certain kinds of protests, but one way that you can't discriminate is based on the viewpoint that is expressed in that protest or in that speech. So basically, if it's permissible for you to say, X policy is a good idea, it should also be permissible to say that X policy is a bad idea. And if you can't say both of those things, then I would question the university's commitment to free speech. Are these policies usually enforced by individual administrators or by a committee? So here at Emory, uh, the Respect for Open Expression policy sets up a committee called the Committee for Open Expression. I am the chair of that committee, and it has over a dozen members, faculty, staff, students. Basically, our job is to consider people's complaints if they come to us saying that their open expression rights have been violated, uh, but also if we feel that it would be beneficial to clarify the policy in some recurring situation, um, then there are ways of issuing interpretive guidances, or sometimes administrators call us and ask whether something or other is permissible, and then we opine on that, yes it is, or no it isn't permissible. So um, 
of course, it also helps that the administrators themselves are on the same page. And broadly speaking, I think the administrators at Emory have been fairly sympathetic to the ideal of free speech and open expression, even when speakers come who are very controversial. Either at Emory or in the United States as a whole, how have you seen administrators and committees like this responding to incidents of protests? Well, I think that um, at different universities, um, the reactions span the whole spectrum. There are some universities where, um, let's say, if a particularly controversial speaker comes, there are some universities who will very strongly stand up for the spe free speech rights of those speakers and the organizations that invited them. And if the media calls um, with hostile questions about why is this speaker here, they have a standard form statement saying the right to free speech protects the right of organizations to invite speakers. And that's it. And I think that's an exemplary response, and more universities ought to do this. Now, some universities, as is their right, some universities can um, actually proactively put out a statement saying, we disagree with this particular speaker. I don't think it's wrongful for a university to do that as long as they don't prevent the uh, speaker from coming. Um, and I think in certain cases, I mean, if an organization invited a literal Nazi to speak on campus, I think it would be fully appropriate for a university to put out a statement distancing themselves from the views of that speaker. Um, and I think it's fully appropriate to allow the speaker to come, but the university has its own free speech, free speech rights, and they can say, we disagree, and we're going to put on our own counter-events uh, to express a contrary point of view. I don't think universities should usually do that whenever they disagree with somebody. I think if someone comes to express sort of mainstream opinions, I just think prudentially a university probably shouldn't get involved, or else they'll find themselves doing that all the time and being under pressure to do that all the time. But um, but I think in general, those are acceptable ways of responding. Now, some universities do um, shut down an event when they think it's going to be too controversial. Sometimes they use an excuse that we can't pay for the security involved. Um, sometimes uh, they um, start the event, but then when they find that... Uh, the, there are too many protesters, then they quickly stop the event and say we can't continue with this anymore, which is essentially a form of yielding to the heckler's veto. And what it means is that when people find that they can shut down an event by protesting very loudly, it encourages organizations to just protest more and more loudly and to call for the cancellation of all sorts of speakers that they disagree with. So I think universities, um, their responses runs the whole spectrum from being very um, permissive to being very controlling. What are some exceptions to free speech? Well, so I think that um, if you look at First Amendment law, um, you find that there are a number of well-accepted um, exceptions. I'm going to focus on the First Amendment, even though it doesn't apply at private universities, because as I've said, many private universities kind of voluntarily incorporate quasi-First Amendment protections. And uh, I find, uh, I have found that at Emory, um, it's 
a statement that I can get many people behind when I say that we at Emory have no fewer rights than our compatriots uh, at Georgia State or at University of Georgia. Um, so I'm going to focus on the First Amendment here. Um, under the First Amendment, true threats are not protected. Incitement to violence is not protected. Uh, there are particular categories of things that are per se not protected. For example, child pornography is not protected. But even certain kinds of regular pornography could be found obscene, and those are not protected. Uh, so there are a number of um, unprotected categories. Um, but unless you fall within one of those exceptions, and the exceptions are fairly limited, um, unless you fall within one of those exceptions, the presumption is that the speech is protected under the First Amendment. And uh, by the way, even if you do fall within an exception, still the exception has to be administered even-handedly. So let's suppose that if a government or a university adopts a rule that um, right-wing threatening speech is not protected. Well, everything that is shut down under that rule is going to be threatening and therefore not protected. But on the other hand, why did the policy only single out right-wing threatening speech and not also left-wing threatening speech? So uh, that's an example where even though on its face the policy only bans what is already not protected, but still that policy is invalid because it fails the test of viewpoint neutrality. On college campuses and perhaps in the courses that you teach, when there is room for discussion and debate amongst the students, do you notice that they are willing to engage and debate freely, or do you think that there are some social blocks to sharing your ideas freely if they contrast to what seems to be the accepted viewpoint? It's sort of hard for me to say as a professor because I observe what people say and I don't observe what people don't say. So um, uh, sometimes if people don't express a particular position, it could just be that no one in the class takes that position, which is fine. Um, I try and tell them that as lawyers, they should always think about the opposing position to their own. And whenever they take a position in class, I am not going to interpret it as being their own position. As a lawyer, you have to be able to make both sides of an argument, uh, even if you're never going to do that in life, but you have to anticipate the argument of the other side. And to anticipate the argument of the other side, you have to be able to imagine it from the inside as though you were actually somebody who took that view. Um, so um, if someone fails to make a point. It could just be that they didn't feel like making that point. Now, I think that there is self-censorship because students, just like everybody else, um, they want to be socially included. Um, they don't want to be thought of as someone who has views that their friends consider horrible. Uh, so I think people often will hold back from expressing unpopular views. You know, you can always say, just for the sake of argument, or let me be devil's advocate here. And I actually think that students ought to be much more willing than they currently are to make those kinds of arguments. I don't think anyone should assume that just because you take a view in class that that's your own view. Um, but, you know, I understand that um, a lot of people just 
want to fit in and don't want to have conflict with their friends, which is fine. And I think the important thing is that there are going to be no consequences from the side of the university. Of course, consequences from the side of your friends, if people want to shun you, if people want to say, oh, that was a pretty racist thing of yours to say, they're allowed to do that. In fact, they're, they're using their own First Amendment rights when they do that. Um, and so uh, I don't think you should, I don't think we should desire that that not happen. Um, I think that people ought to be, um, be self-confident in saying their own views. They should probably try doing that in a way that's not abrasive if possible. Uh, but I think it's normal that people will probably self-censor to some extent. Do you think that there is an American social norm outside of the right to free speech? Do you think that there are social norms within American culture that support the idea of free speech or that support tolerance? Um, well, I think there's um, there are a number of social norms, um, maybe that go in opposite directions. Um, that um, on the on the one hand, um, we we live with people of all sorts of different religious views, all sorts of different political views, and um, if you take the view that oh, I don't want to be around anyone who has different views than I do, um, then you're limiting your own social circles, and so I think there are strong um, there are there are strong forces in favor of uh, people getting along with the other. Um, on the other hand, um, there are four countervailing forces in the other direction. Uh, a lot of the time, people are in their own bubble today on social media, for example, or people may choose to live with other like-minded people. So it might be very easy for them in some contexts not to come into contact with folks who have opposite views. And um, maybe social media exacerbates that to some extent, and you can always block your friends who take views that you don't want. And we often find, um, especially, you know, de depending on the rules of, of the outlet, I found that Twitter lends itself particularly well to people just demonizing other points of view and not trying to understand them sympathetically. Um, and, um, you know, I, I would like to think that that would be self-correcting, but uh, there are some days when I'm less optimistic about that. Does that blocking of other people's views, do you think, bleed over into the university setting? I think that um, there are some views that are very popular in universities and other views that are less popular in universities. So um, some of it, uh, we can just talk about left versus right. I, it's probably always been the case that universities are more liberal than the outside world. Uh, so I think people who have conservative or libertarian ideas often feel more embattled on uh, campuses. Uh, but it doesn't have to only be left-right. So for example, um, I see a lot of polarization these days over issues like Israel-Palestine. Um, and uh, uh, so, uh, so I think that um, uh, at universities, uh, especially because in universities, people talk about social issues more than they usually do in the outside world. Um, and so that's an area where it's very easy to express your point of view on Israel-Palestine and uh, then 
you know, you can find out who agrees with you and who disagrees with you, and you can associate with some and shun the others. Um, I think there are many workplaces where people just don't talk about politics, and it might be very easy to not even know the politics of your coworkers. But universities, it's harder to do that. Do you think the university has an interest in exposing students to contrary viewpoints? Um, I think it does. Uh, universities are one area where, you know, maybe for the first or only time in some people's lives, they'll be exposed to, um, you know, very radical views about how society should be organized. So universities is where people can and should read the Communist Manifesto and Mein Kampf and be exposed to feminism and critical legal studies and critical race theory and radical environmentalism and uh, thinking about ways that either the status quo is right or ways that the status quo should be altered, some of them gradualist views, some of them revolutionary views, um, especially areas like political science, law, and the humanities and social science where people, um, where people talk about how society ought to be organized and what is the nature of justice, um, it's really doing students a disservice to not expose them to everything and uh, to have them practice how to defend their point of view against um, uh, opponents and also how to critique um, the points of view um, of their opponents. So I think that um, norms of free expression are definitely important generally in society, but in some ways are even more important um, in the university. What are safe spaces on campus and how do they fit into all of this? So um, different people use safe spaces in different ways. Um, at Emory, for example, there are some. There are two particular ways that sometimes we talk about safe spaces. Um, some of my colleagues have a safe space sticker on their offices, and what that means is if you have uh, if you have an issue, like you know if you're being harassed because of your sexuality or what have you, then that's advertising that you can come here and I will be a sympathetic person and you should feel free to talk about your issues with me. So that's one way um, to talk about safe spaces and clearly there's nothing wrong with that. Um, also, one example of a safe space is that when an organization, say, reserves a room to have a meeting or a speaker, then that is a safe space in the sense that the organization can choose who comes into that room. So, um, you know, for instance, if a feminist student organization wants to have a meeting, they can say, this meeting is just for our membership, and we're going to discuss X. Uh, or they could say, here is a speaker who's going to come, and we choose to make that um, open to the public. So they could make it open to the public, but they don't have to make it open to the public. Uh, they can say, uh, this is going to be a speaker who um, takes questions from the audience. They could say, this is just going to be showing a documentary. Maybe it's going to be a speaker who will take questions on note cards, which Jimmy Carter does when he comes to speak. Um, basically, the organization is the boss of uh, the space uh, at the moment when they have it. And so that's a safe space in the sense that an opposing organization can't come in and disrupt it. So if Emory Students for Justice in Palestine wants to have um, a meeting, they could prevent um, 
a mob of pro-Israeli students from uh, coming in and uh, challenging them. Now, obviously, that doesn't prevent the pro-Palestinian students from having their own event, but it does, uh, or the pro-Israeli students from having their own event, but the pro-Palestinian students get to manage their event. So in that sense, the um, the room that you reserve is a safe space. And again, it seems that there's nothing wrong with that. And in fact, that's a good way of protecting the organizational rights of the organizations themselves. Now, some people, when they talk about safe spaces, use it in a broader sense, arguing that generally people in a university ought to be protected from views that make them uncomfortable. Uh, and so the First Amendment doesn't support that view of universities. Emory policy doesn't support that view of universities. Um, and I think the point of a university is that everyone should be able to say what they believe, even if it makes people uncomfortable. And if we did adopt a rule that you couldn't say things that made you uncomfortable, I guarantee that the primary victims of that kind of rule will be pro-social justice organizations. Um, that is, it's radical organizations, organizations interested in reform or revolution, uh, and they have benefited the most from strong free speech protections over time. If you look in the free speech cases, many of them are the NAACP complaining about the way they were treated, or World War I era cases where there were communist and anarchist organizations that were agitating against World War I, um, that you constantly have organizations that represent people who are out of power and they're being oppressed by people who are in power. So if you have a rule that gets rid of viewpoint neutrality, it's primarily going to be people out of power who will feel the, feel the brunt of that. Um, now it's true that if you um, support viewpoint neutrality, that means that sometimes you're going to have to support the views of people whose, uh, you know, sometimes you're going to have to uh, support the rights of people who express views that you find abhorrent, and that's the price that we pay uh, for you to be able to express your rights, is that everyone else gets to express their own rights too. The ACLU lost a lot of members in the 1970s when they defended the right of Nazis to march in Skokie, Illinois, a community with a lot of Holocaust survivors in it. But really, that was their finest hour because they really uh, were able to take a strong stand in favor of neutrality in the belief, in the conviction that that sort of stand is what's necessary to protect everyone's rights, kind of in the same way that criminal defense attorneys uh, always are protecting the procedural rights of murderers and rapists because um, it's by protecting the rights of people who, you know, not a lot of people are going to say good things about the murderers and rapists, but somebody has to protect their rights because ultimately that protects the rights of you and me when we are accused of something. The government doesn't have an obligation to protect hate speech. Does the university have an obligation to put an end to hate speech? Uh, so um, when we talk about the um, uh, exceptions to the First Amendment, there are many defined exceptions, and like I said, incitement and threats and so on. There are a number of exceptions. Um, there's no freestanding uh, exception to the First Amendment for hate speech. Uh, so a lot of hate speech would fall under some other category, like threats, for example. Um, but uh, the mere fact 
that uh, certain words are expressed with a subjective motivation of hatred, or the mere fact that someone says words that are demeaning to another person or another group, that doesn't make it unprotected under the First Amendment. Uh, and in fact, the Supreme Court just recently, just a couple of years ago, recently, re recently reaffirmed that there is no hate speech exception to the First Amendment. Um, this was a, a case involving an Asian American group called the Slants. Um, and um, they, uh, in fact, they came and uh, performed at Emory Law School um, not too long ago. Um, and so they took the name The Slants as a way of reappropriating um, a kind of racist way of talking about Asians. Um, and uh, they wanted to get trademark protection for the name of their band. Now, the Patent and Trademark Office said, uh, no, we're not going to give you trademark protection because the statute says that you shouldn't be able to get a trademark for, uh, for names that are offensive. And they said, well, that's unconstitutional. We want the name of our band. And the Supreme Court uh, agreed with the band and said that um, that's an impermissible viewpoint discrimination um, to not be able to uh, get the name of your band just because it's somebody might consider it offensive. And this wasn't involved in the case, but everyone understood that what the court said about the slants would apply equally to the uh, analogous case of the Redskins football team. So there are many occasions when someone might want to say something hateful about Republicans or something hateful about Scientologists or something hateful about people who believe in the flat earth theory. Um, and um, the, uh, the theory of the First Amendment is that um, governments can't be trusted to define what is hateful, and courts can't be trusted to define what is hateful. So uh, there's no freestanding hate speech uh, exemption. And so uh, the same is true at public and private universities. Uh, in fact, here's an interesting thing. I um, uh, recently, well, just in the last few years, uh, had a, a meeting with um, representatives of, of an organization, I believe it was called Palestine Legal, and um, it was, uh, it's an organization that does legal defense for people who are involved in pro-Palestinian activism. Uh, I think especially on college campuses, but maybe uh, outside of colleges also. And one thing that they said is that um, they really don't like anti-hate speech uh, rules on university campuses because once those things are adopted, one of the first groups that they're apl applied against is the Palestinian groups. Um, and I think Israel-Palestine is one place where it's very easy to see that um, the Palestinians will often say, oh, you pro-Israeli groups, you invite war criminals and you promote settler colonialism and that's racist and we should ban that because it's hate speech. And then at the same time, the, the Israeli groups say, oh, you pro-Palestinian groups, you are questioning Israel's rights to exist and uh, that um, anti-Zionist speech is actually anti-Semitic speech and that should be shut down. So we see very clearly that on many campuses today, the pro-Israelis and pro-Palestinians, they each are throwing this hate speech label at each other. Um, and it's clear that that can be used as as a weapon to shut down what are absolutely vital um, points of view because you literally can't talk about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in an intelligent way without engaging these views that some people are trying to shut down right now. On some university campuses, I've heard stories about professors being fired for saying certain words, even when those words 
may not have been intended in an abusive way towards students. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so uh, for example, um, there there are several cases, and I don't mean just legal cases, but just also cases that you can read about in the media um, of people saying the N-word in class, for example. And so clearly, if you uh, if you direct the N-word at a black student in a demeaning way, uh, I don't think there's anyone who is going to stand up for a professor who does that. Um, and uh, it's clear that um, the way you treat your students as a, as a professor, the way I treat my students, that's workplace speech. And so part of what I do um, in a classroom, not all of what I do in a classroom, but part of what I do in a classroom is the speech that I am paid by the university to produce. Um, and um, part of, you know, one of the conditions of my job uh, is that I have to treat my students uh, respectfully and so on. So anyway, clearly um, we're not going to allow people to address their their students with racial slurs describing them. Um, but if it's a matter of describing racial slurs, um, then that stands on a completely different footing uh, because sometimes it's just very difficult to use euphemisms all the time when you're talking about racial slurs in society. When people talk about James Baldwin um, and, uh, you know, James Baldwin uses the word a lot in his own writing where he's describing his experiences with racism in America. Um, Martin Luther King uses the word. Um, there is a famous book by Joseph Conrad, uh, where that word is in the title. Uh, there is um, a book by uh, Professor, Professor Randall Kennedy of Harvard Law School describing how the word functions in society, and that word is the very title of the book. Um, in, um, in my own constitutional law class, uh, we read 14th Amendment materials from the time when the 14th Amendment was adopted in 1868. And uh, there's a speech by somebody in Congress at the time that the amendment was being discussed, and they use the word. So now, you, in some cases, you can just say the term N-word without saying the word. And um, I don't think that necessarily is going to be true all the time. So, um, you know, sometimes if you're in a linguistics class and you're talking about, um, uh, if you're talking about American slang or African American slang, and it might be important for you to distinguish between the word ending in er and the word ending in a, and whether the plural has an s at the end or a z at the end, um, there are many things you can say from a linguistic context where it would just, um, it's it's definitely, um, it's definitely understandable for a professor to make the pedagogical decision that euphemizing the word all the time is just not going to not going to serve the function. It's just going to make it more difficult to talk about what they want to talk about. Um, so um, I would say that in many cases, how to use these sorts of slurs um, are um, they're the kind of classic pedagogical decision which is protected by norms of academic freedom. We're getting close to the end of our time here, so I want to just ask you a couple more questions. First, is there any sort of speech that you think the university should restrict or ban? Well, I think that um, there are many types of speech which could be banned. I think our current policies already do a pretty good job of doing that. So um, I think that anything that should be 
restricted or banned will probably already fall within some categories we've already talked about. For example, um, uh, incitement to violence uh, or true threats um, or uh, speech which is actually uh, defamatory of a particular person. We have you know defamation law in this country. Um, speech which is harassing in it. Um, in a very specific sense, if I were to follow you around uh, and shout things at you in a one-to-one context, or if I ask you out and you say no, and then I continue asking you out, it's the kind of continuing to try and interact with you uh, when you've indicated that you don't want to be interacted with. So there are many sorts of speech like that, which it's uh, fully permissible to ban. And I think um, that's basically already covered by First Amendment law. And it's basically already covered, generally speaking, probably in most universities' um, um, current policies. So um, I don't see that there's any major area where that needs to be corrected in a, in a tighter direction. Okay. And finally, what would you like listeners to remember from our conversation today? Viewpoint neutrality, viewpoint neutrality, viewpoint neutrality. Well, thank you so much for being here today. This has been an episode of Voices and Vulnerability. Expect a new episode at the end of each month. You can find us on Twitter at VHC Initiative and on Facebook at Vulnerability and the Human Condition. Our podcast is available on SoundCloud and on Stitcher. Thanks for tuning in.